Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So I uh, look around the room here. I'm looking at everybody. I'm looking at you online. Do you remember Romper Room? Did you guys? I was a Romper Room kid. And, you know, she'd bring up the little mirror. And, and it wasn't a mirror. It was just an outline of a mirror. And she'd say, I see Donnie and Billy. And, man, I heard my name. I'm like, yeah. Well, actually, I don't think she ever said Donnie. So I was kind of... I was kind of bummed. I was, wish my name was Billy or Susan or something like that. Cause then, Susie, not Susan. <laughs> no, I don't wish. I'm not the boy named Sue. Never mind. <laughs> but anyways, um, so I'm looking online, and I see you <laughs> watching online. But, you know, I look around in this fellowship, and I see some tired people. Uh, how many of you are tired? I mean, physically tired. Just maybe you had a hard, rough night last night or something. Okay, so there's some that look tired. But you know what? I think I can speak for most of us that you're, we are emotionally tired. It's been a, it's been a long, hard season we've been through. Um, it's been, well, we just, here in Minnesota, we've had, you know, that just a real hard, deep, cold weather. And I know folks up in Canada had it even worse than we did. Um, and so we finally, we've got a break. Um, it's actually, I don't even know what the temperature is, but it's, it's, pretty moderate for Minnesota anyways. And so we've had that little break, but you know, boy, I tell you, that was wearing on, it was on wearing on me personally. So I know that people are tired and maybe you're spiritually tired this morning. It's just been a rough, you know, whatever season that you're in right now. Well, if you are tired, if you need a rest, you've come to the right place this morning because that's what chapter four deals with. It's God's rest. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. It's a perfect time and the perfect place. And for those of you that joined us online, uh, if you need a rest, you came to the right place. And so we're going to take a look at that. In chapter 4, one of the things that, uh, uh, well, we're going to be talking about entering into God's rest. And uh, one of the things we're also going to be seeing in this chapter is that Christ Jesus is greater than Joshua. And that's kind of a little side thing there. But, but the biggest focus is on rest. And the reason why I say that is because in this chapter, now chapter 3, we already, uh, God's rest was mentioned at the end of chapter 3. The children of Israel in the land of Canaan, or excuse me, they were in the, in the wilderness going up to the land of Canaan. They couldn't enter because of disobedience into that promised land. And so we were already introduced to that in chapter 3. Well, chapter 4, the word rest Katapausis, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, uh, but it appears eight times in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. The word rest, there's one other word for rest that's translated rest in the New King James, and it's sabbatismos, and that occurs one time in the entire New Testament. It's right there in verse 9. And so we're going to be looking at those and, and talking about that. But in this chapter... As we read through and we talk about rest, there's various rests that are spoken of in this chapter. Uh, there's the past rest that's used as pictures. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the rest from creation. God created the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested from his labor. And so that rest is mentioned in this chapter. And it's a picture for us, and we'll talk about that. And then there's also the past rest, which was the rest in Canaan, where the children of Israel were to enter into the promised land. And that generation that was in the wilderness, they didn't enter because of disbelief, but their children entered. And we'll be talking about that as well. So there's past rest. 
that's going to be mentioned here, used as pictures. Then there's the present rest that the writer is talking about, and that is what is possible. What is possible for you and I? And there's two types. First, there's the rest in salvation. You know, that when we're going to talk about the finished work of Christ on the cross. Then there's the rest in submission. The rest, of, uh, rest in salvation and rest in submission. And we're talking about the leading of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And then there's the future rest. And that is what is promised. And that refers to basically our rest the true rest that we will have in, in heaven. So with that, let's take a look at these different rests that are mentioned in chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So, you know, the good news of the in verse 1 there is that there's still a rest possible for you. It's possible to enter God's rest. That promise remains. That's good news. But the writer here says, let us fear lest any of us or any of you seem to have come short of it. So when he says that, what he's saying is it's possible to not enter that rest. It's possible to come short of it. What, is, what does he mean by coming short of rest? And what rest is he talking about? He's not talking about the past rest, the rest in Canaan. Because that's, that's over. He's not talking about the rest from creation. That's over as well. He's talking about the rest in salvation, which subsequently the end result of that will be rest in heaven. But he's also talking about the rest in submission. It's possible to come short of that as believers. Well, how does one come short of it? Well, to understand what, how that happens, we have to understand what come short means. It's a word that's basically the term, it's, it refers back to the Grecian games, kind of like the, the forerunner of our Olympics, the races that were ran in those, ra uh, in those races. And to come short in those races meant that it didn't matter any distance. You could be just like a hair's breadth behind the leader, and you would have come short of winning the race. You know, I think we've done a, a generation a disservice this past generation. We've had these participation ribbons that everybody gets, you know. If you run your race and you, you don't win, you get a participate. At least you participated in stuff. And, and you know, I mean, it, I think the intention was well, but I don't think it's benefited our generation. That's, you know, it's like, you mean, what do you mean? I, I can't win. We have to win. We have to strive. And so in the Grecian, in the Grecian, Grecan, maybe it's Grecan, in the Grecan games, in those races, you could be a nose distance behind the leader. You didn't, you, you basically come short of winning the race. And that's what's being alluded to, no matter how small being behind the winner. So he's talking about coming short of the rest in salvation, how does that happen? Well, that happens when somebody knows the gospel. Maybe they even believe the gospel. On Wednesday night, we're going through the gospel of John, and, and we talked about the term unsaved believers. What do you mean, an unsaved believer? That's someone who knows the gospel. They even believe the gospel, but they haven't responded to the gospel. They haven't received the gift of his salvation. There's a difference there not personally responding to the gospel. A person can come short of salvation by not responding to the gift. It's like somebody gives you a, a gift. Uh, in fact, the, the company, I, 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 uh, 
a, a, a contract with the company part-time. It kind of helps, you know, pay the bills a little bit. And, uh, and so I worked part-time during the week. And at the end of the year last year, I got a little thing in the mail, in, in the email. It was, a, it was a coupon for some food thing. Uh, I've never, I, Grubhub, I don't know if you guys have heard of that before. Um, I got a coupon for Grubhub, I don't know, 10 bucks or something like that. I haven't used it yet. It's a gift to me. It's there available for me, but I haven't responded to it. I got a bad habit of doing that, by the way. <laughs> you can ask my wife. So anyways, uh, you know, eventually that might expire. Eventually that might be too late. So I have to respond. Well, that's the same thing with salvation. We're given the gift of salvation, but until you respond, until you personally respond, you will have come short of it if you never respond. And so that's what he's talking about. The rest in salvation. Well, how does a person come short in the rest in submission? That's being saved, and yet the world, the flesh, and the devil keep you from resting fully in submission to the Holy Spirit. As a believer, you're saved, but you're not in full submission to the Holy Spirit. And as a result, your life will be fruitless as a believer. So you can come short of that full submission as well. Verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. What is he talking to? He's or talking about he's referring back to the picture of the children of Israel in Canaan or in the wilderness before they went to Canaan. What they heard, the writer calls it the gospel. The word gospel basically means good news. So the word that they heard was, hey, there's good news. You're finally going to enter into that promised land. Look at it. I mean, the fruit is huge. The land is just spacious. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. That's good news. But it didn't profit that generation. Why? They heard the news, but they didn't believe it. And you might ask someone if you were alive at that day saying, don't you believe that this is promised to us? And they'd say, yeah, we believe. He said, well, no, you don't. Because if you did believe, you'd respond. You'd go in obedience into the promised land. The proof that they didn't believe was that they didn't act on it and possess the promised land. Well, you and I, we've heard the good news, the gospel of being able to enter into God's rest and salvation. But the question is, do you believe it? And if you say you believed it, the next question is, have you responded? Have you done anything about it? Take heed that you don't come short of salvation. Verse 3, For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. So he's talking about the rest of salvation because he says, we who have believed. So he's talking to the believers, the Hebrew believers. They have believed. They have entered into the rest of salvation. They've heard the gospel. They've believed it and they've responded. And so he's speaking about believers. And he says, our salvation was finished from the foundation of the world. That blows my mind when I read that, when I think about that. You know, I've got a lot of plans. I've got a lot of projects. None of them are finished until I actually finish the project. I can't say, I can't say well, I've finished my basement. I'm working on my basement. I've been working on my basement for quite a while. I can't say I've finished my basement. Why? Because there's still things that are undone yet. I can't do that. 
I barely have control over me, let alone control over anybody else or control of my circumstances. So I, I can't say my plans are finished, but God can. God can because of his sovereign providence. The Bible says he declares the end from the beginning. He had a plan of salvation before the world even began. That, that just blows my mind when I think about it. But that should also comfort you and I. Because what that means is everything that's going on right now, God is in control of it. And you look around right now and it seems like things are out of control. But good news for you and I as believers, man, God is on the throne. He's still on the throne. He's still in control. Nothing surprises him. He's in com complete control over the control, excuse me, he's in complete control over the course of history. But you know, there's a lot of believers that they don't rest in that knowledge. They don't rest in that truth. They don't rest in God's promises. They're worried about God's provision, and they don't know if God's going to protect them. And so they're, they're not resting in that. You know, you and I as believers, we should have the attitude of Alfred E. Newman. You guys remember Alfred E. Newman? I'm the generation that read the Mad Magazines. If you ever read the Mad Magazines back in the 60s, they had the Alfred E. Newman. He was a freckle-faced kid. And, and actually, as a kid, I kind of looked like him, to be honest with you. But anyways, his motto was, what, me worry? <laughs> that should be your and my attitudes right now. God's on the throne. I don't have to worry. So have the attitude of Alfred E. Newman. Verse 4, and no man takes this honor. Oh, excuse me, I'm on verse five, chapter 5, verse 4 of chapter 4. Uh, for he has spoken in a certain place. You know, I like that too. <laughs> Just, you know, they didn't have chapter and verse back in that day. But, you know, when I read that, it encourages me. Because sometimes I remember a passage of scripture, but I don't remember the reference. And I love it that the apostle that's that wrote this, he says, it's written somewhere. <laughs> he knows the scripture, but he, he can't say where it's found. And so that's, if you're like me and you struggle sometimes with saying the chapter and verse, that's good news. It's in comfort there. That's free. I'm not charging for that, by the way. <laughs> All right, verse 4. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest since it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There in verse 4, he's talking about rest from creation. God rested not because he was tired. You know, it's like, man, I'm, I'm worn out from creating the earth in six days. He wasn't tired, but the work was complete. And because the work was complete, he rested. You know, the only thing that God is still creating right now, there's still something that God's creating, that's children of God. Because the Bible says, the Bible says this, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. So God's still in the business of creating, but he's creating children of God. But as far as the world, God's done creating it. It's a finished thing. And then verse 5 is talking about rest in Canaan. What can prevent you and I from entering into God's rest? The same things that prevented the children of Israel from entering the promised land. 
They're not mixing hearing with faith. We talked about it in verse 2. And their unbelief in God's word resulted in a hardened heart. That can happen to you and I as well. And a hardened heart will end up disobeying God's word. So there's a progress there, or a degress, I should digress, I guess. I like what Warren Wearsby said. The heart of every problem is a problem in the heart. That's so true. Back in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. See, it's the heart that prevents us from entering into those rests that we've talked about already. Well, it's too late for the children of Israel to enter God's rest in the promised land. They came short. That window of opportunity passed. But what the Holy Spirit is saying this morning is that it's not too late for you and I to enter into God's rest, his rest in salvation and his rest in submission. The window of opportunity is open, and it's today. The offer is today. That's why he says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So good news, there's rest available, but don't harden your hearts to it. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Now, this is kind of interesting because he's talking about Joshua. Joshua was the successor to Moses in the Old Testament. You guys know that. He's the one that led the children of Israel into the promised land. His name in Hebrew means Joshua is salvation. What's interesting is Jesus, Christ Jesus, the name Jesus, it's the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. And so Jesus, his name means Jehovah is salvation. And so Joshua was the successor to Moses. And whenever you think of Moses, think of the law. So Joshua was the successor to the law. But Christ Jesus is not the successor to the law, but the fulfiller of the law. Joshua, he physically led the children of Israel into the promised land. They, they, they went in, that next generation. But as the writer says here, he didn't give them that full, true rest that God had wanted for them. Why? Because they didn't conquer all the land that God had promised them. They didn't drive out all of the inhabitants of the land. In fact, they allowed the idolatry, the idols of the land to remain, and it eventually became a snare for them. They succumbed to idolatry generations later. So they never fully got that rest that they could have. Joshua was not able to give them that rest, but Christ Jesus, he's able to give you and I the true rest that God has intended for us. And that's why Christ Jesus is greater than Joshua. Verse 9, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. There in verse 9, that's that other word for rest. It's translated rest here in our Bible, in my Bible anyways, New King James. But the Greek word is that word sabbatismos, where we get the word Sabbath. And it only occurs one time here and one time in the entire New Testament. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament for the church to follow except for one. 
and that's the fourth commandment. What's the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That's the only commandment in the New Testament that we're not commanded to follow. Why is that? In Exodus 31, verse 17, God told Moses, he said, It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. See, for the Jewish people, for the, for the nation of Israel, it was to point them to that Sabbath rest that would eventually come in the Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a, a home, a church home, a Christian family. And uh, I remember growing up, we uh, set aside the Lord's Day. I mean, you went to church. If you, were, you, either, you either were dead or you were deathly ill. Otherwise, you went to church. That was just the way I grew up, right? So I went to church every Sunday. Um, but we also kind of observed it almost like the Sabbath, where you couldn't buy, you couldn't sell, you couldn't work. You know, you just... You just observe the Sabbath. And Christians sometimes call Sunday the Christian Sabbath. But that's kind of a misnomer because Sunday is the first day of the week. In fact, it's re referred to as the Lord's Day. The Sabbath is Saturday, the seventh day of the week. Now, why do I bring that up? Because under the old covenant, under the law, a week started out. You started your week working six days and then you rested, and then you rested, ends with rest. A week under the new covenant of grace starts out with rest, the first day of the week, and then the works, the six days follow after it. A week uh, under, the new under the new covenant, that's right. So you and I, we don't work in order to rest in our salvation. You don't work at it. We rest in our salvation and then we do the works that are befitting to salvation. Again, if you believe, your life is going to reflect that. You and I here today, and those of you that have joined us online, we're devoting today as the Lord's Day. We're doing that right now. We're observing the Lord's Day. We're meeting together the first day of the week, just like the early church did, to honor the Lord and worship. Now, a while, many years ago, we had a family that was attending our church, and their kids were quite involved in sports, and, and at one point, they, they thought it was too difficult to attend our church um, because they had so many events going on, on on Sunday, so they said, you know, if you just switch your church to Saturdays, then we'd come. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, I'm a little bit of a traditionalist. It's like, you know what, the church... The New Testament church always met on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, and I have a hard time. I was reluctant to change. Uh, and again, that's not a, a big deal or anything, but that's just my own personal reluctance. But having said that, having said that, I want to make this point crystal clear. It's unbiblical to make the Lord's Day or a Sabbath day a test of someone's spirituality, how they observe it. Why do I say that? 
because Paul said this in Colossians 2, verses 16 through 17. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding to a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Why? Verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. See, Christ Jesus fulfills the Sabbath rest for the New Testament believer. Paul said this in Romans 14, 4. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own mastery stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he who gives thanks, uh, for he gives thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks. So let each of us be convinced, fully convinced our own mind. What was the Lord calling me to do personally? And then not to project that onto somebody else. Verse 11, therefore, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. That rest, which rest is he talking about? Is he talking about the rest in Christ's salvation? Is he speaking about the rest in submission? The answer is yes, both. Be diligent to rest in Christ's salvation. That's the major theme of the book of Hebrews is the finished work of Christ on the cross for our sins. We're to rest in it. The work is done. Jesus isn't being crucified anymore. He paid the price once and for all. That's the major theme of redemption in the book of Hebrews. And so we're to be diligent to enter that rest. What does it mean to, to be diligent? It means to make haste, and that's referring to speed. In other words, don't delay. And it also means to exert oneself, and that means effort. Don't neglect. Don't be lazy. Another, another uh, dictionary translates it as eager, being eager. So don't delay. Don't neglect. But be eager to rest in Christ's finished work of redemption. Why does he say that? Well, because the Hebrew readers, they were trying to go back to the works of the law. They were going back to Judaism. And so he's saying, you've got to be diligent to enter into that rest. Don't go back to the old pattern of trying to earn your own righteousness according to the law. For you and I, the believers in Christ Jesus, the same applies to us. Paul said this in Galatians 3, 2 verses 3. Two and three. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And what he's saying to the Galatian believers is be diligent to not fall back into works and legalism. It's easy to fall back into those things. Don't do it. Be diligent not to. So be diligent to rest in Christ's salvation. So yes, it does apply to that. But it also applies to being diligent to rest in submission to the Holy Spirit. Because you think about it, that next generation of the children of Israel, they did enter Canaan. They did enter the promised land. But again, like I mentioned earlier, they didn't enjoy the full rest that God had intended for them. You know, I, I, some, some 
older worship songs and I don't know, maybe some newer ones, a lot of times they kind of equated Canaan, the promised land with heaven. I can't wait to get to the promised land, you know, and some, some old songs, you know, that was, that was the theme and that was what it was interpreted. Canaan or the promised land was a picture of heaven, but I don't believe it is. Why? Because when the children of Israel went into Canaan, the promised land, there were giants in the land. They had to slay giants. They had to battle enemies. They had to drive out all the idolatry of the land and the inhabitants of the land. They had land to possess. There was work to do. That's, I hope that's not a picture of heaven. Because heaven's a place of eternal rest for you and I as believers. What is it then? It's a picture of the rest and submission to the Holy Spirit. It's what D.L. Moody described as the victorious Christian life. A.W. Tozer said this. He's talking about the church. Now, when he's talking about the church, of course, we understand he's talking about you and I, the believer in Christ Jesus, that make up the church. But this is what he said. The church is called to live above her own ability. She is called to live on a plane so high that no human being can live like that of his own ability and power. The humblest Christian is called to live a miracle, a life that is a moral and spiritual life with such intensity and such purity that no human being can do it. Only Jesus Christ can do it. That's what we've been called to as believers. Peter said this, 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. You might be thinking, man, I can't possibly be holy like God. I blow it all the time. I'm a sinner. And the answer is, it is humanly impossible for you and I to be holy like God from our own strength and from our own power and according to our own flesh. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Have you ever said that to somebody on the street? Hey, just imitate what I am, man. I'm just, if you, just imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. You, you'd probably, like me, go, man, I, I don't know if I'd say that, man. I speed. I go five miles over the speed limit, and, you know, I, I don't always recycle and, you know, all this stuff. And... Uh, <laughs> I try not to run yellow lights. That really irritates me. <laughs> um, you know, you might be thinking, man, I wouldn't dare say that because my life doesn't match up. But you know what? We're supposed to say that. We're, we're supposed to be able to say that as believers. <clears throat> How many of you, well, I won't ask that question, but let me ask, let me just say this. If you wanted to paint a masterpiece painting, if you wanted to paint a painting like the old Dutch masters, like Rembrandt, right? I want to paint a Rembrandt painting. If you wanted to do that, you'd need the spirit of Rembrandt. And if I did try to do a Rembrandt painting, be like, oh, okay, that's, uh, that's an artist interpretation, that's for sure. If I wanted to write an epistle like the Apostle Paul, I would need the spirit of Paul in me, because I couldn't do it. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 11 and 12. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. 
We've been given the spirit of God. John, Jesus said this in John 16, verse 13 and 15. However, when he, the, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. You remember at one time before Christ ascended into heaven, and Thomas, I think it was Thomas, maybe it was Philip, one of the, one of the apostles said to, said to Jesus Christ, said, Lord, if you just show us the Father, man, that, that'd be enough. Just show us the Father. What did Jesus say to him? Have I been with you that long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because as we've studied on John on, on Wednesday nights, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father on earth. He's the, he is the image of God the Father on earth. The Holy Spirit is the image of Jesus Christ. He's, he's the Spirit of Christ. He's what reveals Christ to you and I as the believer. And the only way you and I can be holy as God is holy is by having the Spirit of God in us and leading us. And that's what the rest in submission to the Holy Spirit is all about. It's ceasing from trying to do things in my own strength, according to my own thoughts. You know, I think I need to do this, and, you know, that doesn't always turn out very good when I do that. It's yielding to his influence. You know, the Bible, you know, some people think of the Holy Spirit as this force. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. He is God. And so we're to hear his voice when he speaks to us. We're to submit to his leading. We're basically to get out of the way and allow him to work through us in our lives. But as I stated earlier, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We have a heart problem, even as believers sometimes. So what do I do? Well, it's pretty simple. We've said it over and over again. Have you ever had uh, counseling from myself or my wife? There's, it's pretty simple. Read the Bible, believe the Bible, and do what it says. It's pretty simple. Read, believe, and obey. And that's why I think the writer now says this in verse 12 and verse 13. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God, it's living. That means it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's God-breathed. What does that mean? That means it transcends time and it transcends space. The word of God is living. It's applicable for all time. It hasn't gone out of date. It isn't like, well, like God didn't know what life would be like in the 21st century or 22nd, 21st century. I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's applicable for all time, and it's applicable for all geographies and all cultures. There's no one on the planet that the Word of God can't apply to. It applies, it's a living 
inspired God-breathed Word of God. It's living and it's powerful. And that word powerful, it basically means energy. It's, energy means it's active. It's engaged in work. It's capable of doing. As you and I read God's Word, as we believe it and as we obey it, it changes us. It transforms us. I don't know how many of you know who David Suchet is. He's an Englishman. He's an actor. My wife and I love watching the Inspector Hercule Poirot episodes on Poirot or on PBS. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. I like them. I don't always understand the English language, but I love the I love the shows. Well, David Suchet was that actor. He grew up being non-religious all his life. And at 40 years old, he started wondering about life after death. And he had a grandfather that he just adored, and his grandfather had passed, and he was wondering, what's, what's, what's up with my grandfather? He started thinking about it, and he said, you know, I decided to read the Bible because the Bible talks about life and death, and I want to know. So at age 40, he was on the set for the movie Harry and the Hendersons. Remember that movie? Our kids loved it. Bigfoot. He was the hunter, the Bigfoot hunter. He played that, that guy. Well, while he was on location filming that, he was in a hotel room, and he's like, you know, I want to read the Bible. And so he pulled open the drawer next to the bed, and there was no Gideon's Bible in there. So the next morning, he called a bookshop. And he asked them, do you have a Bible? And they're like, yeah, we're a bookshop, we're a Bible shop, you know. And so anyways, he went and got a Bible. That night, he went back to his room, and they had made up, the, the maids had made up the room, and there was a Gideon's Bible. So he had two Bibles now. He had two different translations. He sat them side by side, and he read the book of Romans. And he said by the time he got to Romans 8, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. See, God's word is able to transform a life because it's living and it's powerful. It's God-breathed. It's also sharper than a two-edged sword. A two-edged sword, man, it can cut both ways. It's sharp. We need to be careful, brother and sister in the Lord. Sometimes we like to wield the sword, right? Somebody needs to learn a verse, and so we quote a verse at him. Well, we better be careful because it's a sharp sword. It cuts both ways. We need to be careful. It's piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Soul and spirit, that's interesting. If you look up the Greek, they're two different words. In scriptures, sometimes soul and spirit is used synonymously. It means, it means the same thing, but it's used interchangeably. Other times in scriptures, and I have one for example, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, they are separate and they clearly, in the context of the scripture, mean two different things. Some people try to explain the difference. If you've ever read Watchman Nee's The Spiritual Man, he tries to explain the difference between soul and spirit. And, you know, I think he does a, a pretty good job of it. I've read that book before. But, you know, when I think about in my own life, in my own in, inside of me, man, I have a hard time telling the difference between the soul and the spirit. I really do. Only God's word can divide soul and spirit. It's also piercing to the division of joints and marrow. 
So the soul and spirit is undiscernible without the word of God. Joints and marrow, that's hidden underneath the skin, right? It's hidden below the surface. And you see, that's what God's word does. It cuts to the bone. It exposes what's hidden. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. That verse says that the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That word discerner, it's kritikos. It's where we get the word critic or critique. And that's what the word of God does. It critiques our hearts in our mind. It's like a spiritual x-ray mirror. You know, it critiques me from the inside out. Because I tell you what, sometimes the temptation in reading scriptures, and I've done the same thing. I'll be reading something, and I'll go, whoa, man, so-and-so, man, that really speaks about so-and-so. I need to send them that verse. It really, I mean, I, I wish so-and-so would read that verse, because, man, it really applies to them. But what it really, what we should be doing, it's a mirror for you and I to reveal my heart my motives, my intent. Again, it's a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. So do you want that true Sabbath rest that is only found in Christ Jesus? Allow God's word to critique your heart. Allow it to critique your motives. I can deceive myself. I can, I can say I've got the best of intentions and everything, and I start reading God's word, and I go, man, <laughs> I don't measure up. That's a good place to be, to see what your motives truly are. It critiques your soul and your spirit. It reveals what is hidden to others and even to yourself, because my heart deceives me. As you read the word in that way, with an open heart, if you really want the rest, the Holy Spirit will, will reward you. He will speak to you. But when he does, obey what he tells you. Obey what he tells you. Submit to his leading. Because every time you don't do that, your heart gets just a little bit harder and a little bit harder. And it gets a little desensitized. And after a while, it's like, I don't hear the Spirit speaking. Oh, he's still speaking. You just become so calloused that you have a hard time hearing him. The Holy Spirit's like the surgeon, and the word of God is like his scalpel. His word, it may cut. I don't like you know, having a critique of my motives, because I think my motives are pure. And then I read them and go, wow, yeah, that's, man. They may cut and they may hurt, but in the hands of the healer, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, our great surgeon, it's meant to heal. It's meant to remove the cancer of sin that's in each one of us. And in the end result is saving your soul. If I have cancer and, and I go to a surgeon, man, I want him to cut it out. I don't want him to just, just leave it there, you know. Don't, I'm just going to pretend it's not there, you know. No, I want that surgeon. I know it's going to cut. I've had surgeries before. I know they're painful. <laughs> but I want to get that, whatever it is, out of me. 
And so allow the word of God to do that because it'll save your soul. So in closing, again, like I mentioned at the very beginning here, it looks like we all need a rest, right? Well, I have a response for you. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. What is possible? Sorry. Rest in salvation. The finished work of Christ on the cross. Let me go to it on my scriptures here. I don't want to... I'm uh, iPad illiterate. <laughs> that was embarrassing. If you need rest this morning, let me read you out of Matthew 11, verse 28. These are the words of Jesus Christ, the living word of God, the powerful word of God. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the word of the Lord to us this morning. That's the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit, I prayed at the beginning of the service before you guys were even here, that the Holy Spirit would speak to hearts. And I believe he has. And so I, I, I don't want to end this service without us responding. And I'm, before the worship team comes up, I want to just pray with each of us. And for those that are online, I want to pray with you as well. If you're here this morning and, and you know, you, 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 you finally realize that, you know, I, I've, I don't have that rest in salvation. I don't want to come short of it. You know, maybe you've read the scriptures and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that he died on the cross. Even to believe that you die on the cross for your sins, but until you actually confess your sin and invite him into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, you've come short of it. And so I want to pray for anybody here or anybody online that needs that rest and salvation. And for the rest of us that maybe we've accepted the Lord many, many years ago and, or just recently, it doesn't matter, we need that rest and submission. We've been trying to do everything in our own strength We've been trying to make ends meet on our own. We're, we're afraid of what's going on. We're not trusting in God's providence and his protection and his providing for us. He wants us to rest in him this morning. And so I want to pray for each one of us this morning. And then after that, I'll have the worship team come up and we'll close with the worship.